for that promise. That promise that we have in Jesus. That you would never leave us nor forsake us. That our future, our destiny, that it's in you. And Lord, as we consider your word tonight, we pray, Father, that you would, by your spirit, minister to our hearts. I pray that you would overlook mine inadequacies as a teacher and that you, Lord, would teach your people. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. How many of you have been following the Olympics? Okay, quite a few of you. I know some uh, in our fellowship have Olympic fever. In fact, there's probably some at home watching the Olympics right now. But uh, I've heard of people staying up till two in the morning, you know, to see, uh, you know, some of the different, you know, games and whatnot. And, and uh, just being, you know, some of you people love this time of the year, you know, to just come to watch the you know olympics and watch these incredible athletes and it's interesting in following especially some of the team competitions like for instance the gymnastics and and hearing in in the 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 whole course of the gymnastic team that was put together that there were actually some of the gymnasts that were better overall athletes and gymnasts than some of the ones who made the team. But because of the team competition, they singled out ones who were, you know, just really, really good in a certain area. So they would be able to help the team. And, um, and so that's kind of how that, you know, Olympic choosing, uh, of these athletes who were going to be on the team was put together. And it's quite an interesting story when you look at and you see that these are some of the finest athletes in the world. And they have trained for years and they have trained hard and they've, you know, put it all together. And, and you look at them and you watch what they do and, and you see how fit they are and how athletic they are and just how together they are. And it's like, man, that makes sense that they picked that guy, you know, to be on that team or they picked that gal to be on that team. Well, tonight in our study, as we are working our way through first Samuel, we see really God's choice. His man, the choice of his king, the one that he declared would be a man after his own heart. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. In our last two studies, we've focused on the rise and fall of King Saul. Now, King Saul was the people's choice. He would have won the people's choice award because he was everything that the people wanted in a king. He was handsome. He was powerful. He was a man of prestige. But because of his pride, he was a, his was a quick demise. It was a quick fall. It was really after roughly three years as being king that God rejected him. And although he would stay on the throne for several more years, they would be years that would be marked by an absence of God's leading and anointing. In fact, really, the only good that came out of Saul's reign as king really came from the the hand of God being upon some of those men who were around Saul. One of those men being his son, Jonathan, and another being one who would become his armor bearer, David. Now, we noted in chapter 15 that it ended with Saul's incomplete 
obedience. He was sent to go out and attack the Amalekites and utterly obliterate them, that they were a cancer in the land and God wanted them to be taken out. But King Saul didn't do that. As you recall, he went out and and not only did he bring back King Agag, but he also brought back some of the choicest animals. And when when God saw this, when God saw, you know, yet again, the rebellion in King Saul's heart, he said, that's it. It's done. It's over. Samuel, the prophet, comes out and he basically delivers that message to Saul. And as Samuel goes to leave, Saul is just in a panic. And he's more concerned, if you recall, you know, he's saying, bless me in the eyes of the people so they know, you know, that God's still with me, even though he's not. But, you know, bless me. That was where he was coming from. And Samuel goes to leave and he reaches out, he grabs a hold of Samuel's uh, robe and, and, and tears a piece of it. And Samuel turns around and says, just as you've torn my robe, know this, that the kingdom is going to be torn from you this very day and given to another. And after this, Samuel takes care of business. He grabs King Saul's sword, walks over to Agag, Agag and basically just hacks the guy, it says, into pieces. Well, Saul goes home discouraged, trying to figure out how to hang on. In fact, he'll spend years doing this. The anointing, the hand of God has been removed from his life and he's spending years trying to hold on to this kingdom that God is taking from him. And Samuel goes home mourning, wondering, okay, what's next? Who is this man after God's own heart? And with that as our backdrop, we come to chapter 16, where we read, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now this is interesting to me. It tells us that there is a time for mourning over leaders who have fallen. It's, there's a time for mourning over sin. In fact, I think a good mark of a man or woman of God is that they are burdened by the sins of people around them, that, that it hits their heart. I think something that we have to really watch in our Christianity is that we don't get so calloused. You know, those who work in law enforcement, oftentimes, I talk with some of my friends in law enforcement, and they see so much garbage. They see so much just crud, you know, out there that they see in people's lives and people that they come in contact with that oftentimes they, they get callous because they see so much of it. That it doesn't impact them like it did when they were a rookie there on the force and they would see the drug dealer or they would see the, you know, abusive husband or the abusive father and, and it doesn't move them because they've seen so much of it. And sometimes I think as believers, we can fall into that same trap. I know for me as a pastor, I can struggle with this at times because so, so often, you know, I, I can see a lot of problems. And sometimes it's it, it's easy to get a little calloused, but it's important that we don't do that. Samuel was discouraged, but 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 we, we we must also remember that God is never going to allow His work to die with the the death or the failure of a man. It was God's work. 
And God had a plan that would go beyond any man. So God says to Samuel, look, you've grieved long enough. It was good that he grieved. It was good that he mourned. It's good that he was moved over the sin of Saul. But God comes and says, look, you've grieved enough. It's time now to get on with the program. It's time to get on with my man. God was ready to do a new thing, but but Samuel was still grieving over the old thing. And so Samuel needed some nudging here from the Lord. It's like the Lord comes to him and says, come on, Sam, let's go. It's time to get up, you know, wipe away the tears and come on, let's get out there. And I really, really appreciate the nudging of God. How many of you know what I mean by that? You know, where God comes and he just, you know, he just nudges you at times where he comes and just his Holy Spirit just kind of convicting you and just kind of coming, you know, alongside of you. And those times where he comes and says, come on, it's time to get on with the program or it's time. You know, look, you've been praying about this long enough. It's time now to take that step of faith. I appreciate that nudging from the Lord. And that's what God is doing here with Samuel. But notice his response in verse 2. Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now we can certainly understand Samuel's fear here. I mean, if Saul, Saul would have looked at this as utter treason. If he heard that Samuel was going down to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king, I mean, he would have looked at this as, hey, he's committing treason. So we can understand Samuel's fear here. But the problem is Samuel's eyes were fixed on Saul instead of on the Lord who was calling him and sending him. That was the problem. Now, I don't know about you. But Samuel's response here really encourages me. I mean, here's this great godly guy. I mean, here's this man of God. And yet Samuel's reacting in this way. And it encourages me because I do this. I can give God 101 reasons why I can't do, you know, what he's asking me to do. Why or why it's impossible. But I want to say this. Here's what separates a great and godly man like Samuel from many of us. Notice verse three. Notice what it what it says here. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me one that I named to you. And so Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. Now, here's the here's the point. What separates a great men of God from the rest of the crowd is when God says go, they go. When God says get going, they do it. They might question at first. They might lack faith at first, but eventually they respond. Eventually they take that step of faith. Peter's a good example of this. They're in Luke chapter 5. He's been out fishing all night, hasn't caught anything. He comes in with his buddies and they're cleaning up their nets. Jesus comes there to the the shoreline and and a crowd follows and he starts teaching and he asks Peter, hey, can I borrow your boat? Because the crowd was pressing in. Sure, he gets in the boat and kind of launches out a little bit and he's standing there in the boat and he's preaching to the people and kind of using the the water as a natural, you know, uh, uh, amplifying device. 
And after he's done preaching, he says to Peter, he says, you know, hey, let's go fishing. Let's take your boat out in the nets and let's go launch out into the deep and catch some fish. And Peter has all these reasons why they shouldn't do that. It's the wrong time of the day. You know, it's the the wrong place to fish. They've already fished all night. They haven't caught anything. They've already, you know, washed their nets. And so he gives all these reasons why. But then he says this. Nevertheless, at your word, we'll let down the nets. That is always the response of a man or woman of faith. The one who says, the man or woman who is in that place of being surrendered and submitted to the Lord, they might at first say, you know, but Lord, but Lord, or, you know, this or that. But they come to that place of saying, nevertheless, Lord, whatever you're asking, that's what I'll do. Nevertheless. Lord, this doesn't make any sense to me, a woman might say, to submit to my husband. But nevertheless, at your word, I'll do it. Lord, I don't understand this move, Jason might say, to Paris, Texas. But nevertheless, Lord, I'll do it. Lord, I don't understand what your word says concerning, you know, why I should tithe. But nevertheless... Lord, I don't understand this. You're calling me to forgive. And Lord, I have so many reasons why I shouldn't. Yet nevertheless, at your word. What's God been saying to you? What has he been impressing upon your heart that maybe you've been reluctant to do? Know this, you're only hindering his plan for you. You're only hindering him from moving in the miraculous there in your life like he was going to do with Peter and like he would eventually do with David. And so Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a small town and it wasn't very far from Jerusalem. And it was the home of Ruth and Boaz from whom the family of Jesse descended. And it was a hilly grain growing region with many small grain fields carved into the hillsides. But Bethlehem, this kind of obscure little town, was the place where the the hidden place, really, where God was working on his man. Where God was working on the heart of this young man that he was going to raise up to be one of the greatest leaders in the history of Israel. A man who would be a man after his own heart and the next king in Israel. Now, I want to comment here on Samuel's commission. God told him to go down to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons. I want you to to note that it was really a vague commission that God was giving to him. God didn't tell him the son's name. He didn't tell him that it was going to be the youngest. God told him one thing and withheld all the other information. And so often that's the way that God works, isn't it? So often that's the way that he works in our life is he only gives us part of the picture. He rarely ever spells it all out. He rarely ever shows you the whole package from point A to point Z. He doesn't do that. The Bible says that his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so often that's the way it is. We're walking with him and it's step by step. Why does God do that? I want to note three reasons. If you're taking notes, three reasons why he does that. First of all, he wants us to walk by faith. He wants us to trust him. 
Trust that he'll supply in his timing the rest of the, the, the information that's needed. He wants us to trust him that he'll supply the resources at the appropriate time. So he doesn't lay it all out. He just says, hey, I want you to go. I want you to venture out. I want you to take this step. I want you to move in this direction. And I'll give you further instructions as you do, as you go. Secondly, he wants consistent and constant communication. You know, think of it in this way. It's like you get stuck. And I don't mean this to be offensive at all, but it's true that it is a very, very, can be a very, very dangerous place to end up, uh, especially in the middle of the night. But let's say you got lost in Watts up in L.A. And you're there in, in, in Watts and you just, you're driving around in circles and you realize, you know, I am not in a very good, you know, place here. I need to get out of here. And you call somebody who can give you some directions. How are you going to do that? You're going to have your cell phone and you're going to be, okay, I'm on this street and they're, and you want them to tell you, okay, go to this street, turn right. And then go to this street, turn left. You don't want them just to say, well, you know what? Go about four miles this way. And then, cause you know, hey, that might not work out. You want that constant and consistent communication. That's what God wants to do with us. He wants us to be in that place in our relationship with him where we are relying upon looking towards his constant and consistent communication with us. And that leads to number three, because he wants us to be continually dependent upon him. So he keeps us in the dark a little bit so that we keep seeking him. So that we keep drawing near to him. When my youngest daughter, Amanda, when she was a, a little girl, she so much, I think because of her older brothers and sisters, she wanted to be so independent. And so we would go places and she would get out ahead. She would try to get out ahead of us. And she would think, I know where we're going. And, you know, she would want to run up ahead. She would want to get ahead of us and she would be completely oblivious to the dangers that were up ahead. The traffic that was, you know, that she was running towards. And so often we can do that. We can run recklessly up ahead. And in doing so, we, we get in, in the way. Or we get ahead of the Lord and we don't have any sensitivity to his timing and his purpose and everything that he's doing to prepare that scene and situation before we get there. And so he wants us to walk by faith looking to him, being dependent upon him, seeking to stay in communication with him. And so he doesn't always give us the full picture. Now, for some of us, that really bugs us. And we spend so much time and energy, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know there's a lot of us that we can do this time to time. We spend so much time and energy trying to figure out what he's doing, where he's leading, where he's going. And we, and we're, we exhaust ourselves trying to figure out what God's doing and what he's up to. Can I encourage you to just rest? Can I encourage you just to, to sit back and, and, and listen to and depend upon and, and follow the voice of, of your leader and enjoy the ride? Enjoy where he's going to take you? Instead of getting all stressed out over, you know, trying to figure out what he's doing and where he's going to just sit back and go, I trust you. I trust you, Lord. And so I'm going to I'm just going to follow where you are leading. Verse four. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come 
peaceably. Now, I can only imagine that after the Agag incident that Samuel had quite a reputation now, you know. It's like, man, is he packing a sword, you know, when he's coming in? And these guys were wondering, you know, have you come peaceably or are we in trouble too, you know? Well, he says to them, I come peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, I think this is a good little side note here concerning the preparation of the heart before times of worship. This time of sacrifice was going to be a a time of worship for them. And yet he says to them, go sanctify yourselves. Go get cleansed, in other words. Go cleanse yourself. Go sanctify yourselves. Go consecrate your Jesse. Go consecrate yourself and your sons before we sacrifice. You know, I think that's a good thing for us to do. Years ago, we had a time on Wednesday nights before the service that we called kind of a pre-worship time. And it was just a time before the service actually started where people could come in and music would be playing and sometimes it would be somebody leading a little bit of worship. And it was that, just that time to just come. And, and I don't know about you, but, but sometimes it's so easy in the midst of the day just driving around on roads to, to get dirty. And I don't mean, you know, dirt's flying in your car window, but get dirty in your heart because you're getting mad at people and, you know, that type of thing. And sometimes it's good to just come and, and just lay all that out. Lay all that down before the Lord to cleanse ourselves. It's a good practice. Verse six. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now here we see some keen insight into the kind of man that God chooses when he's looking for a leader. If you're taking notes, there's several things that I want you to jot down here concerning the man that God chooses. The first thing that, that this tells us is that the basis of God's choice is contrary to human reasoning. When Samuel sees Eliab, he, he sees this guy and he's like, man, he's got the whole package. He's thinking right away, this is a good choice, God. This guy is ideal. Eliab was a carbon copy of Saul. He was big. He was strong. He was handsome. He was a man's man. I mean, he was the, the Clint Eastwood or the John Wayne or the Chuck Connors of the day. I mean, he had it all going for him. But the problem was Samuel only saw the outward man. But God sees the character God sees the character. God's not looking at how big he is. He's not looking at how handsome he is. He's not looking at his big biceps. He's looking at his heart. He's looking at the character of his heart. And God says, look, don't do that, Samuel. Man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. And in our society, don't we? We base so much. We base so much on the qualifications and credentials and and the outward appearances. We base so much on first impressions. And a lot of times those first impressions can be a facade. 
to the real thing. It's like going to Disneyland and you think you're looking at a building and you, you know, walk through and, and, and it's just this, you know, very elaborate front. There's no building behind it at all. Or you go to a movie set and you see that type of thing. You think, wow, look at that castle. And the kids, you know, go running to go through the castle and there's nothing on the other side. Well, oftentimes that's the way some people can be. Oh, the first impression, they just look so incredible. Everything on the outside just looks so wonderful. It looks so incredible. But there's not much on the inside. And that's where God is looking. When God is looking for a person, he isn't interested in so much in all the ability or the talent or what that person has to offer on the outside. He's more concerned about who that person is on the inside. He's more concerned about the fiber of their heart. He's concerned about their integrity. Well, Eliab didn't pass the test. Alan Redpath in his book, The Making of a Man of God, said it this way. God chooses... When God chooses to build a man of God, he looks for different timber. In other words, he's looking for timber. He's looking for for materials that are different from the world. Different from what the world looks at. Samuel made the mistake of judging Eliab based upon his appearance, which is the same mistake that Israel made with their failed king Saul. Saul looked the part of a king, but he didn't have the heart of a king. He didn't have the king's heart. Listen, it didn't matter how good Eliab looked because God said, I have refused him. So verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Something's wrong here. God hasn't picked these guys. So Jesse has all seven of his sons passed before Samuel. Now, this is interesting to me. Seven is the number of completion. Or it's the number of perfection. Again, Alan Redpath said Samuel's seven sons represented the perfection of the flesh. Outwardly, they fit the criteria, but God is not interested in refining the flesh. That wasn't God's plan. Seven being the number of perfection. And here's seven perfect sons by worldly standards. Any one of them would have been a great king. Any one of them would have been a great choice. Well, then Samuel says to Jesse, verse 11, Are all the young men here? And then he says, well, there remains yet the youngest. And and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. Now, the term youngest in that culture referred to the least. It wasn't just a term that described age, but it also it, it described your position. And so David wasn't just the youngest, but he was the least. And so Jesse wasn't holding back any secret of his estimation here of David. He was his insignificant son. He was his unimportant son. He was so insignificant that when Samuel says, hey, get your boys together because I'm going to anoint one of them. He doesn't even bother to, to pick David. It's like, you know, it couldn't be that guy. And it wasn't like David was miles away because he says, you know, there he is. 
You know, he's, yeah, I, I got a, this young little guy and he's right over there. You know, he's just down the road there with the sheep. It wasn't like he was, you know, off busy. It's just that he was insignificant in his father's eyes, but he wasn't insignificant in God's eyes. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. I'm sure Samuel must have, you know, kind of checked his ear there for a minute. Like, okay, really? <laughs> you know, this is the one, the Lord says. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the, the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. The second thing that we want to note about the person that God chooses is oftentimes it's one that we would least expect. And why does God do this? Why does he work in this way? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, I'm reading from the NIV version. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God says, I'm going to choose the least so that I get the glory. When people see what I'm going to do through that individual, they're going to look and they're going to realize, you know what? Look at that guy. This had to be a work of God. This had to be a God thing. You know, there are certain campus ministries and they do a, a good work. But their philosophy of ministry really, in some senses, goes against this verse here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and also the pattern that you see God so often using in Scripture. Because part of their philosophy of ministry is this. We're going to go into this college campus, or we're going to go into this high school campus, and we are going to target the quarterback of the football team. And we're going to target the center on the basketball team. And we're going to target all of the cheerleaders. We're going to target basically the who's who of the school. And if we can win these people to Christ, then they'll influence the rest of the school. And we'll win them to Christ. And so that's their, their thinking. If we can attract these type of people, we will win the school. And so that happens. And, and they're successful to maybe a certain degree in their strategy. But so often, what's happening is more of a, a social thing that is born out of positive peer pressure than necessarily a work of God. Where kids are like, well, you know what? Uh, man, the quarterback's there. Let's, you know, let's get on board. You know, let's go be a part of this. God says, I have a different plan. I'm going to take the least expected. I'm going to take the least likely. And I'm going to do such an awesome work that people are going to scratch their heads and go, that was a work of God. I mean, think about it. When God wanted to reach the hippies there in the 1960s, when he wanted to reach that group, who did he pick to minister to them? Did he pick some hip guy with long hair and, you know, holy blue jeans who was a great musician? No, he picked a balding Bible teacher who liked to surf. Pastor Chuck, that was the guy that he picked to 
reach these this this generation that was so lost when God was looking for a voice to preach the gospel in the early part of the 19th century. Who did he pick? Did he go to the the seminaries and pick the biggest and the brightest and the most educated? No, he picked a humble, uneducated shoe salesman by the name of D.L. Moody. When he wanted to when he was looking for another evangelist for the mid to late 1900s, who did he pick? He picked a tall, lanky, fiery farm boy from North Carolina named Billy Graham. When he was looking for a new voice to reach the masses in this generation, who did he pick? An ex-drug dealer named Greg Laurie. You see, God picks people like that so when the world looks at their background, the response is it's a miracle. It's amazing. It makes no sense. Going back to the Olympics, you know, we watch, my wife and I, we've been really intrigued by the, the swimming, watching Michael Phelps and the Torpedo, Ian Thorpe or whatever his name is. And, and when you look at those two guys and you see what great and gifted, you know, athletes these guys are, you expect them to do well. You know, you're expecting a gold or silver medal every single time they jump into the pool. But but picture this. It's not Thorpe or Phelps, but it's a 50-year-old overweight guy. Now, he would look pretty bad in the Speedo or bodysuit that they wear, but, but, but picture this. Here's all these first-class athletes. They're there. They're getting ready to jump into the pool. And then here's this guy, you know, down in lane 10. And everybody's just kind of cracking up. And he blows them away. I mean, he just completely blows them away. People would be scratching their heads. They'd be going, it's, it's a miracle. How did that happen? That, that's what God does in the church. That's what he does in the world. He takes people like that that people would just go, that doesn't make any sense. David didn't make any sense. He was probably somewhere between the ages of 13 to 15 at this point. And watch what we're going to see next week, what he does. His famed story of taking down Goliath. So Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, seven being the number of perfection. But eight, the eighth son was the chosen. Eight, that's the number of new beginnings. And God was going to do a new work in Israel, a work that needed a new man. And David was that man. What kind of man was David? Well, I want to note three things about his character. First of all, David was a spiritual man. He is twice referred to in the the scriptures here as a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? It's a very unique title that is given to David. Abraham was called the friend of God. He had that unique title, but David was called a man after God's own heart. He had that unique title. What does that mean? I think it means that, first of all, he was a man who was after. He was pursuing the heart of God. As we were singing tonight, he was a man who was thirsting for God. He longed for God. In Psalm 42, we're told, as the deer pants for the water brooks, David writes, so pants my soul. For you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. David thirsted after God. He longed to be near God. In Psalm 27, he said, one thing I've desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Note that. One thing I have desired, that was his passion. 
One thing I have desired and that will I seek. He made it his pursuit. Oftentimes we have a passion, we have a desire, but we don't do anything with it. David's saying, look, I'm desiring this and I'm going to make it my the one thing that I'm pursuing after. He was after God's heart in Psalm 57, verse seven. He says, my heart is fixed on you, O God, and I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. His heart was fixed. David might not have been much to behold on the outside, but he was something special on the inside. And God took notice and he gave David this unique title, a man after my own heart. So first of all, I think it means that he was pursuing God. He he was after God. But I also think it means that David was like hearted. It speaks of a person whose heart is in harmony with the Lord, that that the things that God loves, he loves the things that God hates, he hates the, the things that grieve God, grieve him. He grieves over sin. The things that burden God are the things that burden that person. Not burdening in the sense of being hard, but burdening in the sense of just capturing his heart. The things that are important to God are the things that are important to that person. That's a man, that's a woman who is a, a person who is after God's own heart. And it's that type of person that God is looking for. It's that type of person that fits the criteria of being a man or a woman after his own heart. David was unique, but he was not to be looked at as the exception. And I want you to note that. So often we make the huge mistake of looking at the characters of the Bible and saying they were special. Looking at the characters of the Bible and saying they were different from us. When in reality, the Bible says, no, that's not true. These men and and, and women that we read about in the Old Testament, the Bible declares that they were men of like passion. They were just like us. They were made of the same materials as you and I, which means that you and I can be this type of person. We should all desire to have hearts like that. The Lord declared in Second Chronicles 16, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts is loyal toward him. And the New American Standard Version, it says, whose heart is completely his. God is looking for men and women whose hearts are completely his. What that means is he's looking for people that don't have any locked closets. That don't have any secrets, that don't have anything swept under the rug, that don't have anything that they're they're hiding. Their heart is just completely given over to the Lord. David was such a man. He was, first of all, a spiritual man. Secondly, he we want to note that David was a humble man. In Psalm 78, verse 70, it says that he also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. Sheep tending was one of the lowest of the servant's jobs. It was one of the jobs that was reserved for the lowest servant on the totem pole, which again gives us some indication of what Jesse thought about David because none of his other sons were doing this, but, but there's David. Oh yeah, you know, he's the least. He's the insignificant one. He's like one of the low servants. He's out there tending the sheep. And what's interesting is David is humble enough even after being anointed by Samuel to go back out there into the sheepfold and to be faithful in basically what we might call the little things until God was ready to exalt him with much. 
That's what God saw in David is this humble heart. This humble servant. David wasn't seeking the limelight. He wasn't, you know, but, but he was faithfully tending his father's sheep. And God saw that humility and rewarded him. The Bible declares promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west, but from the Lord. The third thing about David, why David was God's man is because he was a man of integrity. Again, in Psalm 78, verse 72, it says, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. The word integrity is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It means complete. It means wholesome. It means innocent. It means sound. It means having a simplicity of life. It speaks of one who is real. And this was David. Someone put it this way. Integrity is what you are when no one else is looking. That was David. He was simple. He was a man of integrity. His yes was his yes. His no was his no. There was a simplicity to David's life. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't concerned about what others were thinking about him, but he was concerned about what God thought of him. He was motivated by a fear of God rather than a fear of man. That was Saul's problem. And so often that's a, a lack today. Now, from the actions of David and Jesse and David's brothers, from this point on, we can only gather that Samuel, only God and Samuel knew exactly what was going on here. As David was being anointed, I don't think David and and his brothers and his father really grasped or understood that this was an anointing at this particular time for being the king. They probably thought that Samuel was just honoring David for some reason. Probably no one even dared to think that this was David's anointing as being king over Israel. But God knew because God had been working in David's heart for a long, long time. Again, Redpath said the public anointing was the outcome of what had taken place in private between David and God long before. Many of the Psalms that David wrote that we have penned were written before this time as a young boy, as he's out there in the fields with the sheep and with the Lord and looking up at the stars and just saying, you know, behold, the earth, the earth reveals the glory of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. David becomes this incredible worshiper in this time that he spends out there in nature. And all that time was that time of God refining and working in his heart. Now, there were three outward evidences of the destiny of God for David's life. The first evidence was this anointing. This was the first step. He received this immediately. The second evidence was the spiritual battle that he entered into with Saul that we're going to see in the few chapters to come here. Suddenly, there's this intense jealousy and bitterness in Saul's heart that he just he, he wants to take down David, starts throwing spears at him. And it would last almost 20 years. And the final evidence was when he received the crown and was enthroned in Israel. Almost 25 years after this event. But I want you to note that. It was a long time between the time that David was chosen and anointed to be king and the time that he was actually crowned. What was the reason for that? Well, that time in between would be used by God to mold and shape David for what would be his destiny. Well, the same thing applies to you and I. It's a long time for most of us between the time that we are chosen by the Lord and anointed by the Holy Spirit 
and filled with the Holy Spirit at our salvation and the time that we are going to receive our crowns and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And in between, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of spiritual battle. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of pruning. Why is that? Because it's all God's way of preparing us for that which is our destiny. Now, as David was anointed with oil, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And so the oil on the head was just a sign of the inward reality of the spirit coming there upon his life. What's interesting is as the spirit comes upon David, he also departs from Saul. Pick it up in verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, right away. A question arises in the minds of many that say, if God is all good, why did he send a distressing spirit upon Saul? This doesn't make any sense. Well, there are two senses in which God may send something. He may send something in the active sense, or he may send something in the passive sense. Now, actively, God never initiates or performs evil. Actively, he'll send blessing. But he doesn't actively initiate or perform evil. James chapter 1, verse 17 says that he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. But passively, God may withdraw the hand of his protection and therefore allow evil to come without being the source of the evil itself. And this, I think, is indicated by what happens with Saul. First, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, first God's spirit leaves. This means that that Saul lost that spiritual protection. He lost his covering. It opened him up and Satan was more than ready to send a distressing spirit to fill the void in Saul's life. It's almost like in the story of Job. Job is going through all this havoc that comes directly at the hand of God. And yet throughout the book, there is reference to God doing this in Job's life. Why? Well, because God allowed Satan to do that. God wasn't actively involved in in the, the suffering that Job went through, but he was passively involved. He allowed Satan to afflict him. And so as God lifts his hand, as he removes his spirit, it opens the door for the enemy to come and here bring this distressing spirit upon Saul. We pick it up in verse 15. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it will be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. And so Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech and handsome person. And the Lord is with him. And therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, loaded him with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by his son to his son, David, to Saul. And so David came to Saul and stood before him and he loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. 
And then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit of God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. And then Saul would become refreshed and well, and a distressing spirit would depart from him. So here we see David is thrust right into, into this position of being right next to Saul. And I think there's several reasons for this, but I think you know one of the main reasons is David's going to get a firsthand glimpse of what he doesn't want to be. He's going to get a firsthand glimpse of how he doesn't want to handle situations. He's going to get a firsthand glimpse of what he didn't want to become. It's almost like when you see somebody who's just been strung out on drugs. Hopefully, it motivates you in a way to just say, you know what, I don't want to touch that stuff. I was talking to a guy the other day whose dad was an alcoholic, and I asked him, I said, did you ever drink? And he was like, no way. You know, and watching what that stuff did to my dad, I didn't want to have any part of it. And I think that this is kind of the idea. This is part of the, the, the plan of God is he wants David to see what, what, what Saul has become, his abuse of power and what, it, what it's like. I mean, why else do you think David would pray later on, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me? Because he remembered. He realized. And that's what happened to Saul. The Spirit of God departed from him and he started to go insane. This distressing spirit came upon him. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to take place in my life. But God puts him right there in the palace in this awesome position. Now, before we go, I want us to note one more thing there in verse 18. And this is mainly a little word for those of you who are, are in, inclined or have a desire to be involved in worship ministry. And if you don't have that gift or that desire, don't check out. You know, this is, I think, still uh, applicable, you know, for us. But I think as we look at this description, the description that is given of David here, that we, we really have a good description of what to look for in those who desire to be used in worship leading. Five things that I want us to quickly note. First of all, he's mentioned as being skillful in playing. He needs to be skillful in playing. To lead Saul in worship and to minister to him in music, David had to be skillful in his playing. The technical quality of music makes a difference in being a, an effective worship leader. The heart matters a lot, but so does the technical ability. But having said that, I want to say this. That doesn't mean, though, that you have to be an expert musician before you can be used by God. But it does mean that they cannot tolerate a too casual or unconcerned or lazy, yeah, we don't need to practice type of attitude. But it's a person that wants to be skillful in what he's doing. We've talked with our worship leaders here. And one of the things that we've talked about as far as our, our heart and our desire as it relates to, to what goes on here in worship within the body is that we want it to be excellent. Excellent in this sense. We want it to be excellent, to be our very best for the Lord and our very best for the people. To be excellent. And that's that heart, that skillful in playing really reflects an attitude as much as it reflects 
an ability. It's an attitude that wants to pursue excellence. Number two, he says to be, he said to be a mighty man of valor and a man of war. Saul was being spiritually attacked. And David's playing, his worship, if you would, was going to be a weapon. Some of you, you go through your day being spiritually attacked. And the time that you come here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night as the guys or gals get up to to lead worship is a time where that worship becomes a weapon in a sense against the hand of the enemy who's been distracting you to get your mind focused that's focused on all those things to be focused there upon the Lord. Worship. It's interesting. You read in the Old Testament of times where the priests would go out ahead of the army. In other words, the worshipers would go out singing before the, the army was going to go out fighting. Worship, I think, is a radical tool that we can use in spiritual warfare. You know why? Satan hates worship. In Ezekiel chapter, I think it's 28, it describes him there as being, before he was thrown out of heaven, of being the worship leader in heaven. It describes him as just being this incredible being that, that brought forth all of this music and all of this worship. And what was Satan, what got him thrown out of heaven? He wanted to be exalted. He wanted to be worshipped as God. And so one of the things that he hates, one of the things that just ennerves him is when God's people come together to worship God because that's what he's craving. And so worship. Ministry, for that reason, I think, is a constant battleground because Satan is always trying to distract God's people from worship. But a good worship leader is going to have a degree of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to understand we're in a battle and to be sensitive to that battle that's going on. Number three, he's to be one who's prudent in speech. Good worship ministry needs a lot of diplomacy. And the reason for that is because everybody has an opinion on music and everybody has a suggestion and we get a lot of them. (laughs) Everybody has their opinion about that kind of thing. And so a man, a woman who's involved in worship, they need to know how to speak and when to speak and when to be quiet and how to handle those type of situations. Number four, he used to be a handsome person. David, we're told in verse 12, was a good-looking young man. Now, an effective worship leader doesn't need to be a fashion model, but appearance is important. They need to present themselves in a way as to be invisible. To be invisible. To not be seen. If they're so dressed up, or if they're so dressed down, that they're appearance calls attention to themselves, then it it defeats the purpose. Our focus is to be upon the Lord. So they're to be presentable. And number five, the most important, it says that the Lord was with him. This is the most important attribute. The other's measures will grow and develop But that person, it has to be said of that worship leader that the Lord is with him. In other words, he's anointed. She's anointed. God's hand is upon that person. And we're blessed here at our church. We have a a whole array of very gifted, anointed people who lead us in worship. But pray for them. Pray for them. Because I know 
I talk with them. And that battle, oh, it rages. The challenge to, to, to take and set aside the time to be skillful, it can get hard. There's all the opinions that are coming at them and all the ideas and prudency, being prudent in speech, it can be a challenge. So pray for, thank God for our worship leaders and pray for them. Pray that God would just continue to work in them and continue to develop them. So here we see in chapter 16, the basis of God's choice, him setting aside, him singling out David, this man after his own heart. We'll pick up in chapter 17 next week, and uh, we'll get into this awesome story of David versus Goliath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. For your word. And Lord, we do want to be men and women after your heart. Men and women who long for you, men and women who pursue you, and Lord, men and women who are becoming more like you. So, Lord, work in us, we pray. Work in our lives. Do that work in us, Jesus. Lord, we give you our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.